Welcome to Australian Design Radio to provide Australia and the world with conversations and commentary on Australian design. I'm Flynn Tracy and I'm here with Matt Leach. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Now, I had a swollen disc in my lower back. Man, getting old, it's not fun, hey? Mm. I went for a bush hike with some old school friends and there was there was a lot of stairs. And I didn't I didn't feel it that day, but I could barely move the next day. Old school friends, like old, like you guys are old. Yeah, huh? yeah, like, like school, school, school friends. Um, how did you get it fixed? Like go to a physio or? Yeah, I did my first time. And I got to say, he's very good, but he's a little weird. Like for instance, as soon as the clock ticks over the 30 minute time, he, he just leaves. And it's like, he doesn't even say goodbye. He just, oh. like the first time he did it, I, I just lay there for 15 minutes thinking like, oh, he must be coming back. I thought he just maybe popped out to get something. But no, he, he never did. But, so, but if he wasn't so good, I'd probably be annoyed. How about you? How are you? Uh, yeah, I'm really good. You just reminded me of like in movies when they just never say goodbye on the phone. Like they always just hang up. It's always super strange. <laughs> yeah. um, Adobe stuff. So yeah, um, taking a small break from the live streaming that we've been doing. We've been doing like a lot since February. Uh, yeah. And I'm working on Adobe Max, which we've been to a bunch of times. Um, so it's pretty cool to be able to work on that. Uh, from here, from here in Sydney. So yeah, exciting. amazing. So I imagine that. I mean, that's probably a really nice change of pace for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just good to shake things up a little bit. Like I love doing the live streaming, and it's super cool. Um, but also, I think like a lot of people, it gets a bit Groundhog Day at the moment. It's been like over six months, so it's it's just <laughs> yeah. good to work on a different project and start flexing some of those other other skills and other kind of muscles. So who do we have on this episode? On this episode, we have Ross Mariati, Managing Director at Ballaringi, a design company she has been running with her husband, John Mariati, for over 37 years. Can you imagine that? 37 years wow. running running an agency. It's pretty amazing. I just complained about working for six months. I'll shut up now. <laughs> During that time, they've seen so many changes, and it, they've really been at the forefront of Australian strategy and design, especially when it comes to Aboriginal design. Yeah, they have some huge clients such as Qantas, the Australian government, the Australian Ballet, Microsoft, Nespresso, like Caltex. Um, and yeah, that Qantas plane, that beautifully designed Qantas plane um, that a lot of Australians would know um, was them, which is which is super cool. I didn't know that. So, Yeah, their offerings are not your typical design agency offerings either. And we get a lot into that in this episode. You know, the thing I love about Ross is she's so patient and giving with her time and her knowledge. I feel like a real idiot when it comes to discussing Aboriginal design sometimes, but she's so incredibly insightful. I mean, it's no wonder in 2014, Ross and John were dual inductees into the Design Institute of Australia's Hall of Fame. So recognised finally for their unparalleled contribution to building bridges of best practice participation between Aboriginal communities, business and the broader community. Yeah, I really wish I could have been there for this one. Although you were joined by the wonderful Prue Jones from Fjord, who did a bang up job as always. She did. It's always great to co-host with Prue. I should give a little shout out to the 2020 trends that Fjord put out recently that Prue was involved in. They do it every year and I always find it really insightful. Some of the trends lists that you see online can be a bit generic or a bit opinionated without much to back it up. But the Fjord trends, I always look forward to. Just do a search for it. It's worth looking at. Yeah, and another business that we also uh, love who gives a lot back to the industry is Streamtime, our good friends and supporter of the show. Yeah, last episode we talked about a lot of their education events and they're all on demand up on their site. So make 
make sure you check them out. Streamtime's also a major supporter of Never Not Creative. And if you haven't checked out the Mentally Healthy 2020 results, they now have a replay up on the Never Not Creative site. It's well worth a listen and watch. Just go to nevernotcreative.org and check it out. And also, if you haven't tried Streamtime, go check it out now. You can try it for free. Um, and see if it helps your productivity like it helps ours. Yeah, shall we jump in? Hey, you edited this one. Did you manage to get rid of Ross's next door neighbor using the leaf blower at the start? I did my best. We'll see if anyone can uh, can still hear the, the cameo from the leaf blower. I hope <laughs> I did all right. I hope you guys enjoy. So, Roz, it's amazing to talk to you because you've done amazing things in your career. And I wanted to dig into that a little bit to give some context about who you are and what you've done. But first, when I speak to people with a long list of achievements, I'm always interested in how they describe themselves. I mean, I've done nothing and I find it hard enough to describe what I do to people. So on your profiles, I've noticed there's a consistent way that you talk about it. So you say you're a business owner, author and social investor. Why those three and why in that order? Hi, Matt. Uh, it's pretty lovely to speak with you and Prue. Uh, I mean, I have a lot of things on my CV because um, I'm getting older. So we started this business 37 years ago. 37, wow. Mm, so I was about 25 or so, I think, when we started. I was always the youngest in the company. Now, yeah, I bring the average age to a respectable <laughs> level. But, <laughs> But yeah, of course, uh, you know, these, these things happen. And the reason in that order is really the business was where it started. So um, we started the business back in 1983. Mm. And uh, I wrote a book later, so quite a lot later, um, 2010. And in 2012, we had the opportunity to set up a foundation, which is where I became a social investor. So it's kind of uh, chronological, really. Right. I love it. So you were born in Tasmania. And you studied a Bachelor of Arts at ANU, majoring in French linguistics and anthropology. And I'm, I'm interested in digging into this because you talked about, you know, 37 years ago, you set up the business. I mean, before that, you were on Radio Australia on the ABC, but you left that to set up Ballaringi. And that's 1983. I'm interested in, in how that happened. I guess you, because it looks like you were going for like a, a long career in the ABC and then shifting to design. Can you tell us more about that? I think, like a lot of careers, mine has been a bit circuitous. And in the end, it veered into a path of passion rather than perhaps planning. Mm -hmm. And I I met John, uh, who would become my future husband and business partner, Aboriginal man, uh, Yanyuan man from the Gulf of Carpentaria, when we worked together in Canberra. So, you know, at that point, I was still doing some work in journalism, but I was also, I'd finished a degree and I was looking at where that might take me. But then we had our first child and he was a child born in two worlds. And that led us to the idea of design quite randomly um, because I think, yes, there's nothing in my early background that would suggest a design career. Tell us, how how did that lead you to design? So when we had our first child, he was born in Melbourne and John is from the Gulf of Carpentaria. He was one of the stolen generations. So he was taken away when he was four years old. So I'd heard that story when we'd met and I'd grown up in Tasmania and you know our history books told us that there were no longer any Tasmanians so I knew that was wrong because my cousins were Aboriginal but by the time I got to Canberra 
Uh, I really didn't know a lot as a young Australian. I was 21, I think. And, you know, I hadn't heard a lot about Aboriginal Australia. So when I heard John's story of having been taken from his mother as a four-year-old, uh, I had to ask him to tell me a few times. I couldn't really assimilate in my head that a government, a welfare system and the church had literally taken yeah. his children from their mother's arms and in John's case had taken him 3,000 kilometres south to the Blue Mountains, which is where he grew up for a lot of his life and then into Adelaide. Wow. So then when we had our first child, we wanted to celebrate John's return to country and people and language and culture. Um, so we took our children, we had three We've got three kids and um, uh, another son and then our daughter. We've always taken them up and down to country so that they can spend time and feel very comfortable in their skin in the way that John does. And uh, so just, I think, quite randomly, um, John had talked about the idea of Aboriginal art just beginning to emerge. That was, uh, you know, sort of back in the late 70s and the dot art movement was really gaining a lot of momentum, sometimes internationally, more so than here. And how he wanted to celebrate the beauty of Aboriginal life and culture. And, you know, maybe we could try to do some things in design and why don't we make some curtains or bed covers for our new baby who was a young boy in Melbourne but with a very deep tradition of belonging back in the Gulf Cup chair. And that's how it began, literally, with some long-necked turtles that we silk-screened onto his bed covers. I love it. That's gorgeous. Um, I just am listening to you talking there about John and the stolen generation and all of that trauma. When when he became a parent, how how did that? Do you think that that affected him from you know being a parent, having been a child with that that horribly traumatic experience of being removed, stolen, literally stolen? How did that influence him as a father? Do you think? I think John's always had a massive sense of gratitude for having his kids, having a family, you know, having an environment where he doesn't, didn't worry whether in the morning his child would still be there or not. I think he used to check on the kids a lot, you know, probably just from this sense of um, hoping that this would be a different world and that he could control things more than his mother was ever given the chance to do. Unthinkable. You... You talked about travelling into country, and I was going to bring it up a lot later, but it seems like a natural place. Your book, Listening to Country, is that where that developed from? Yeah, that's the middle part of the career, really. And uh, I'd been going up and down to the Gulf Carpenteria Terrier with John and with the kids from the early 80s. So we would jump in the car in Adelaide by that point, which is where we were living. And it would be a three or four day drive, so we'd drive you know, sort of up through the centre and find somewhere to camp overnight and eventually get into Buralola. And it was a time when there were a lot of older people who were still very connected to dreaming, and that's still the case in the top end of, of Australia. But then there were many old people who were still speaking language fluently and, uh, you know, were really, really had that connection to dreaming that they'd learned at their mother's knee. And so my mothers-in-law and aunts and sisters and, and mothers whom I was welcomed into the family to know and to bring the kids, you know, they'd said to me for a long time, Iwani, which means uh, daughter-in-law, 
you've got to learn culture with us. You need to learn to dance. You need to learn to sing. And, uh, you know, we were always pretty much on quick trips in and out of the Gulf. We had jobs. We had to, we were raising three kids in town, but also trying to get up and down to the Gulf with that really, really long drive. And, you know, early days of a design business, absolutely no money. So, you know, somehow, somehow, you know, scraping together enough to get a, a pop-top camper van or something that we could, you know, drive all those Ks into the yeah. Gulf and often on unsealed roads and, it was a pretty tough gig, sometimes without aircon in those vehicles, so that was pretty tough. But it always amazed me how in a community where life was becoming more and more difficult. So John's mum was blind in her later years, um, so we would, you know, take her, our kids and, you know, she would hold them and, and fill, fill their faces and we'd talk to her mm. about their personalities and we'd go out fishing and spend time with family up on the Gulf. And it just seemed to me that, that so many things were becoming more and more difficult. So food was harder to come by for people. Crime and violence uh, was escalating. And the community, you know, was really trying to keep itself tethered uh, to this sense of culture that was being bombarded by, you know, all sorts of disintegration and, uh, and challenges. And yet, the strength of culture and the strength of language uh, was undeniable. And the sense of optimism and, and joy and happiness in family, which I guess is this very beautiful spirituality that underpins mm. Aboriginal life, it was palpable. You know, um, for me, it was, it was palpable. And I thought one day I would love to write about this, but that was 25 years before I wrote this book. Right. Okay. Yeah. So just percolating away there. Waiting for a respectful time, I think. Okay. You know, waiting, waiting for a time where I felt um, that I could be some sort of voice. I could assist that voice. And I guess that's permeated the design career as well as the book, mm. which has been, um, you know, how, how do we respectfully and uh, collaboratively and authentically, you know, assist this voice to, to hear itself in... In lots of forums, one one of which was uh, was the book that I was, you know, really uh, privileged to write, and it was a lot of fun. It's interesting you talk about that idea. I guess it feels very much like the in design sense, the Australian Indigenous narrative has been not invisible, but almost hidden. I guess what wh- or worse, co-opted. Y- I think sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What do you think that's changing? I mean, you you mentioned that it was. You, you waited for a time until it felt right for you, but but do you think it's also the society has changed? I think in the nearly four decades that we've been developing a design studio, that there's been an enormous amount of change. You know, if you think back to the early '80s when we were looking to celebrate this beauty that was John's vision and to bring a sense of identity to our own family, which ended up being something that Australia was also seeking, as it turned out. Uh, which was evident in some of our design commissions a few years into our development. But the change was slow coming. You know, I think I'd say that for the first 20 years of, of our development, we were really, uh, you know, really looking to open doors that were pretty securely closed. I think in the last 10 years, there's been uh, you know, quite a rapid change, in, particularly in the, in the design fraternity, in, in wanting to participate, to understand how, and amongst clients, certainly in the last even five years, there's a far greater appetite to tell these stories that I think rightly you say have been invisible. You know, our foundational story um, has been invisible. Mm. You know, I mean, how many of us realised in our early lives just how British we are? 
um, yeah. you know, where's where's the Australian part? Yeah, no, it's um, I mean, we spoke before we we sort of came on air just about I've been doing a course just to try and understand a little bit more. And it's really shocking about how much we weren't taught at school. And, you know, that, that very idea that I know probably more about British history than I do about Australian history. It's true. So I want to talk more about um, Balaringi. And I guess you seem to have three services or you have services under three headings, um, cultural design principles, wrap design and branding identity, curatorial and public art and interiors. And I wanted to, if possible, dig into each of these because I think it's quite fascinating. It tells a lot about the, the studio and the business. Firstly, cultural design principles. So this seems to me, from an outsider, looks like a very strategic research arm of the offering. Can you tell us more about what sort of briefs you get and, and I guess how you kind of tackle this area? It's really interesting, actually, Matt. Uh, cultural design principles is something that we began to speak about several years ago, but really the last few years we've been able to interest designers and clients into thinking about what the underlying principles are for engaging with Aboriginal design, with uh, Aboriginal philosophy, um, quite a broad sense of bringing a sense of Indigenous beauty yeah. to places. And, uh, you know, part of that is, is the social value of inclusion, but a big part of it is really the, the value of making better places. So we've been undertaking a strategic conversation to gather interest in this idea that designers don't necessarily have to look to the States or Europe for, you know, great design thinking that we actually had and have a society that has sustained by great design, you know, mm. a, a continent for more than 60,000 years. So there's a really deep level of philosophy around what these cultural design principles might be. And they're, they're coming out of, I guess, our studio's base deep in the Gulf Carpentaria, the Northern Territory in terms of thinking. And, you know, I spoke about our our first child that we took back to sit with the elders and uh, all our kids have Aboriginal names from the community. Uh, Tim is Bundian and James is Jawarawarrel. Tim is Bundian means cheeky brown snake. James is Jawarawarrel, which means dugong. Julia is Marielu, which means mermaid. And actually our eldest son, Tim, is now creative director at Ballerinji and he's bringing a very deep sense of his belonging to Yanua and to the community into this sense and layer of cultural design principles. But the whole premise of them is that we work very collaboratively with local people to place. So if we're working on Pacific Highway, then we're working with Yeager and Gumbangi and Bunjalung people up and down a corridor of that project. Or we're working with Darug in, uh, in Western Sydney. Or we're working with Gadigal around the Redfern Station Refresh. So wherever we work, we're working on the cultural design principles that pertain to that particular group. Some of them might be overarching principles that we, we know from our deep roots in Aboriginal Australia and the fact that, you know, um, nine of our 12 delivery team are Aboriginal people and uh, from various parts of the country. Uh, but we also connect with people from those places and they're knowledge holders and they are practitioners, they're designers, they're playwrights, they're mm -hmm. other creative people who can bring this story together into a set of principles. And the set of principles we really developed to assist design teams to f be able to genuinely and authentically work in co-design with 
people who speak for that place. And that's really the central part of these um, design principles. And they're, they're very specific to each of our projects. Does that make things very tricky? Because, I mean, there are, you think about Indigenous peoples across the nation, there's so many different peoples, uh, languages. Does it make it very difficult to incorporate all those different principles? It's a really intensive process, actually, Prue, that we try to get clients and design teams passionate about because it does provide a really unique sense of place in that particular project. So for someone who might visit that place or work there or live there um, or intersect with that place in, in some way, pass through that place, they will get a sense of what the local story is. And that story um, everywhere in Australia links you know, back to 60,000 years of history. So there's a process and uh, as designers, you know, we have, we have strategy and process and, uh, and, and ways, frameworks where we can develop that with design teams and with, you know, everyone in that design team and preferably up the front end of projects where we are talking to the planners and the architects, designers, landscapers. So, you know, whomever is going to be involved in setting an overarching narrative in a really general sense for the project is talking with us, with local community from the outset. Uh, and, you, you know, we talked a little bit about um, such a different worldview, I think, before we were, we were um, online here. But we were talking about the fact that Aboriginal people see the world really differently and it's a very rich way of seeing the world differently through a different lens. So I think it's exciting for the Australian design profession to be able to enter that complex world yeah. and to make sense of it and to interface with it in a really authentic way. It's, um, it just really strikes me, you know, like 10 years ago being involved in like... Um I guess, workshops, which were like, you know, let's find the Australian design, you know, let's stop relying on. And it was always this kind of like, it's almost like we just ignored what was right in front of us sort of thing that, as you said, just got so many, so many years of kind of like its own strategic thinking, its own kind of style and authenticity. And yeah, it just feels like a real kind of like waking up point. <laughs> just a, how, how, how kind of blind we were. Yeah, I guess hindsight, you know, you think back and think, well, you know, why on earth did it take this long? But, you know, we, we started in the 80s and that was quite a long time before there was a bridge walk for reconciliation in yeah. 2000. So I think the national consciousness is also contributing to how we're viewing who we are as Australians and mm. as the most multicultural country on earth. You know, what's, what's our binding uh, foundation? And it actually is our Indigenous foundational story. It's fact. Um, I've got to also ask, what's it like working? Because it sounds like a real family business now. <laughs> does that, does, is, there, is there family arguments that happen? So our kids have been in and out of, you know, the business and we have a foundation where we deliver um, early learning and football to kids in the bush. Mm. Uh, and uh, our kids have all been involved, are involved, were involved um, in and out. And, uh, yeah, look, family businesses, I think, carry a great passion mm. for what we do. And uh, it's a really lovely opportunity for continuity. Um, and But alongside the family business, you know, we also have a, a really phenomenal team, quite a young team of project managers and designers and artists and collaborators and community engagement people and with a high proportion of Indigenous staff. And, you know, it, it really is credit to this team at this time that, you know, we have moved into this sense, I suppose, of, uh, of, of really pivoting 
the business to some much bigger picture ideas and opportunities than would have been possible in the past. Yeah. Um, I want to jump back to the services because I, I, I really, really want everyone to know about the different services. So if we talk about RAP design and brand identity, RAP stands for Reconciliation Action Plan. This brand identity is probably, I guess, what you're best known for. And I'm thinking about the Qantas um, planes with the flying artwork series, the opera house projections for the Paralympics. And I remember seeing the Nespresso promotion, which was just awesome. <laughs> so if, any, if anyone hasn't seen it, they have to look that up because basically creating an amazing artwork out of Nespresso capsules. Can I ask more about wraps? Because for people who don't understand what they are, can, can you explain what they are? So many companies in Australia have a wrap, which is a reconciliation action plan, which is something that is part of the strategy of Reconciliation Australia. And it's basically where a company sets down in writing its intentions for reconciliation with the Indigenous community. So we get involved quite often with strategy around that. A few years ago, we did a review of Qantas's operations in the reconciliation space. So they've been around, they've been doing this since 1988. They had a 2% employment policy back in 1988. And, right. uh, you know, see, we started working with them quite a lot later. But, you know, we were looking at what the strategy had been and where that was going. And we've, we've done that for a number of clients. Uh, so there's often a strategic conversation. And our advice is always to look at what is core business for someone who is looking to develop a wrap. So if a wrap is core to business, then it's possible for it to be sustainable. And if it links clearly to you know, what the, the cohort in that company understands as its core remit, then it can become you know, something that is deeply embedded in the company. The other end of the wrap, of course, is the design of it, um, both its structure and its the graphic design and the branding. And that's you know, part of that delivery as well. But the, the idea is really to provide some structure for an organisation to consider how it wants to operate in the reconciliation space towards Indigenous people. Hmm. In getting ready for this interview, I, I was looking up and I noticed there's been some recent changes to the Indigenous procurement policy. How is that going to affect the design industry and, and I guess, collaboration? So Indigenous procurement has been a really good tool. It's been a very good structure for companies that have needed some direction, uh, mainstream companies who have really wanted to contribute to reconciliation and to you know, accessing the value that Aboriginal people and companies can bring to them. So federally and across the states, there are Indigenous procurement policies uh, that basically provide a fast-track procurement system. So a client um, or a you know, a team of designers can look to access services that might assist them to bring more consciousness of an Aboriginal outcome into their project. And it might be around employment, it might be around procurement of other sorts of services, um, you know, design, etc. So mm. the procurement policies are quite important uh, as a redress mechanism, really. Mm -hmm. So it's just about how to create opportunity and create more of a channel, which might have been closed to uh, you know many Aboriginal people in the past. Mm. The clients you're working with, uh, you know, according to your website, are huge. Like they're they're really big. And you mentioned on your website you often work with the in-house teams. And I'm interested in this. Is it is it a collaboration or or is it, I guess, passing on the principles or teaching the principles? It's probably all of those things, mm. actually, Matt. So, you know, some of the bigger projects we're working on at the moment are, for example, 
M12, so the M12 motorway, yep. which was some work we won uh, over the last few months. That's with Transport for New South Wales, with Roads and Maritime Services. Uh, we're working with a number of companies who are co-delivering, so Hassel Architecture is delivering part of that project. Uh, so it, it really is a combination of bringing the local, in this case on that project, uh, the Durham community to the table and to collaborating and co-designing these outcomes. In this case, they are or they will be physical outcomes on the highway from bridge overpasses to sculptural works um, to elements that will be part of urban furniture. So it's a big project and one that's enabled us to work closely with Darug Artists and to bring our team into that collaboration to co-design probably elements that have extended the practice of those artists, but equally being able to bring the community into the client has really expanded the client's knowledge and commitment to the stories. And, uh, you know, we see a great uptake of engagement from the client, uh, you know, once that process is in place. It's seen as believing, I think. Yeah. And, you know, bringing, bringing the client and the design team into those really close relationships with the Aboriginal community that we're bringing into the local co-design process is uh, it's really what I think makes a difference to get that commitment and hopefully to get some continuity of uh, these kinds of projects getting, you know, this kind of momentum. That's so interesting. Um, Ros, could you go into a little bit more detail about what that co-design process actually looks like? Because when I think of co-design, I think of, you know, deep research, um, perhaps some you know, rapid prototyping of things. How, how, how might you go about that kind of co-design process with those communities? I think the difference with Ballerinji and the engagement process into the Aboriginal community for built form outcomes is that we are design-led. So in the past, it's been a little more siloed often. So it's been a, perhaps a designer to the client who's been able to engage a generalist. So it might be someone who engages across cultural mitigation or you know, things that need to be done in order for a particular cohort of people, in this case, the Aboriginal community, to make sure that you know, sites are not disturbed or um, you know, that people, the right people have been engaged. So our process is really beyond that sort of mitigation and it is really looking to enrich the outcomes. And in practical terms, that means speaking first and foremost with the local people for that place who speak in general for the community. That will include people like the land councils, uh, some of the service organisations, often academic institutions. So, you know, the community of Aboriginal people who speak for and on behalf of those people of that place, they will then endorse for us and with us a group of creative practitioners, many of whom are artists, that we bring together in workshopping. And that workshopping continues throughout the project. So it often begins with sketching and interpreting the stories. But by that stage, you know, our specialists on staff and a number of our Aboriginal staff, some of whom are connected to those local communities, or we will engage and employ uh, local people within those communities. So we're really working on a very authentic plane to get to this point where we know this narrative uh, reflects the place, the site, and it can be it can be a city building, it can be a block, it can be a corridor, you know, it can reflect trading routes and song lines that might have underpinned uh, roads that have been built since, you know, since colonisation. So it's quite micro as well as macro um, mm. of getting people talking together and, you know, into a workshopping process. And, uh, you know, we bring the engineering teams in and out of that as well. So on these really large projects, uh, you know, it can be quite um, 
quite complex and intensive, but we are progressing practice, uh, you know, with, within everybody's, you know, milieu, really. We're, we're bringing everyone through on a, an uptake and a, a learning process so that this can be replicated. I'm going to ask a really naive question. The, obviously, add all these extra steps will slow down the process. How, how do you not convince the client, but inform the client that, that these steps are really necessary? As I mentioned, sayings believing. So mm. it's difficult until you can point to a project where the client has been engaged and has seen the difference and, you know, can see the value. So it, it's all about value at the end of the day. So, you know, we can talk about social justice all day long and that is our driver. Um, but unless we can demonstrate that this is actually a value to the project in many ways, including yeah. social justice, then, you know, really that, that, that opens the door. So when the client sees that, that can certainly happen. Uh, the key is actually starting really early. So providing this process begins right up front at the you know, beginning of project thinking, so the beginning of conceptualisation, because in the past it's really been much more around, gosh, when are we finished? <laughs> yeah. uh, does, someone, does someone know a great mural artist? We've actually got this terrific wall where wouldn't it be great to have Aboriginal painting? And so this is the antithesis of that. Yes. This is really placing this thinking way up front. And these design principles beginning to influence designers. You know, I sat down with some Canadian designers, some First Nation architects last year, and they talked about the fact that, you know, they, um, they, they look to preserve natural resources on their sites and they have a seven-generation outlook for any project they do. So you can imagine that's long-term. Yeah. We're actually looking project by project and uh, we're saying, look, engage us up front because the value is highest and the outcome will be greatest and we will fit within your time frame. And I guess because Ballerine is experienced enough to work with timeframes and timelines and budgets and, you know, the practical things that we are giving the sector confidence that this is a really viable path. Mm. You spoke about um, authenticity before, and I know this is incredibly important to Indigenous artists. What's the best way, and I'm, I'm thinking about for other design agencies who may want to start working with Indigenous artists, what's the best way to ensure that authenticity stays? So across the design process, it's really important just to keep, uh, to, you know, to keep people engaged. So the old paradigm where you would engage an artist at any point of the process and thank them for their work and you know, say, look, we'll be out to get you to approve the final sketches and then you'll see it on, on the wall. It really is about engaging and co-designing and really, you know, with any, as you would with any member of your design team, to really engage and keep that process happening throughout the process until the work is finished. Mm, that's great. So I'm going to come back to the, um, to the services again. So the final service you offer is curatorial, public art and interiors. And this feels like it's the area where you really cross over to the outside um, and is, I guess I'm interested, is, is this commissioning artists, collaboration or, or actually, you know, designing the pieces? So it's generally commissioning mm -hmm. or collaborating and uh, often it will be both. And sometimes it's coordinating a curatorium. So on Redfern Station Refresh, for instance, uh, we had an expression of interest out to artists. We had a very large number of artists responding and we had the community engaged in appointing six artists in the end and uh, one of those artists we appointed as the head curator and then we supported that process so often right. we will do that and you know um, again it's all about increasing uh, the practice and expanding 
horizons and you know perhaps offering ways to work 3D where people might have worked uh, on paper. So it's yeah, it's, it's really about that commissioning process that enables development. I've noticed with a lot of the artwork as well, is often integrating Indigenous and non-Indigenous works. Is there guidelines you need to follow there? So sometimes, for instance, on um, the Jazine Barracks um, mm. Garambara site that we did in Queensland a few years ago, which is a really big site, it's a 14-hectare site, um, it was a big development, it was a $40 million development, and they set aside a really good budget for art and curatorial and uh, we worked with 13 local Aboriginal artists and seven Queensland public artists. Um, all the artists' cohort was, were Queenslanders, and that's another hallmark of our work is that you know, it, it is always local. And uh, again, it deliberately we put artists together to increase the practice, to expand practice, and to, in a sense, it's a type of reconciliation. So, you know, you have people working together on a theme that the community has... Uh, developed and has you know, stories the community has told. And in that sense, those artists were working together to uh, express a work of art that pertained to that land and to that country. And so that, so that working together is, is great too. So, yeah, it depends, depends what the outcome is and, you know, who's, who's working on the project. Mm, that's great. The, um, I think a lot of design agencies would love to work with Indigenous artists and communities, but probably aren't sure how to make that first step. What would you suggest to them? And, and I guess what would be the best practice around, I guess, co-design and collaboration with those Indigenous artists and communities? Partnerships and co-design are always the, the way to go. So there are databases where, you know, mainstream companies can look to work with companies like ours or other companies. Databases like Supply Nation, for instance, uh, where certified Indigenous businesses, many of whom are operating in the design space, are registered. So, you know, that's a good place to start. And I guess, you know, we always counsel that listening and listening intuitively and developing uh, some protocols around cultural competency, which, again, you mentioned earlier that, you know, there's one being developed by or being delivered by SBS, for instance. So there are a number of ways that I think people can look at cultural competency and you know, how they ensure that their approach is collaborative, respectful, intuitive and, uh, you know, listening carefully and being led by that community and looking for partnerships where, you know, some of those roads have already been, um, been set upon. It really feels to me that design educators need to do more in this area. I mean, obviously, they have design ethics and sustainability, but it feels like we need this sort of cultural, I guess, learning and understanding more in design education. I think there's a big gap in design education across all aspects of design. So I think it's very ad hoc. I think if there are champions of this, then you know that content will probably be sourced and included. But I think it would be a great national conversation to standardise that a whole lot more and to really open the opportunity to particularly Indigenous practitioners who have experience and you know who would like to get involved in the academic area and who already are perhaps, um, who could work, you know, in these ways to upskill academia and to upskill curricula. Uh, but it's an upskilling need that exists right across industry. So it's industry, it's, uh, it's curricula in universities and, you know, other places of learning in schools. Uh, you know, we're still looking at how will we tell this story that is our foundational story in a way that's authentic and 
respectful and respects Indigenous IP, which is the really big issue, I think. I think that, you know, that, that's really the, the big issue that respects the IP and is prepared to pay properly for it. You know, our methodologies, we always employ, we always pay, um, you know, we, we don't engage for a chat. Um, you know, we always pursue best practice with our clients to, you know, to provide a, a source of income for people who are sharing their stories and methodologies and their aspirations to tell this story. So beautifully said. Yeah, it's really interesting because I'm, I'm looking at you, Roz, we're talking, obviously we're, we can see each other, um, and you've got a piece on the wall behind you. And it just made me think I've actually got a couple of pieces here at home as well, but, you know, with art, uh, thinking about Indigenous art as a, as a thing, it's usually centred, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, it usually is telling a story and it's telling a story of a people a collective I don't know if that's just reducing it down but I I feel like you know it's so much going on with human-centered design and this idea of designing for a collective whether there is something in that we think about western art and a lot of you know art in the past it has been from a perspective of one person painting I guess their opinion about something whereas it always seems to be as I said more about the collective and I wonder if that is sort of a theme in Indigenous designers as well, whether they kind of carry that through as well. I think so, Prue. I think that collective of community belonging, it's, it's belonging more than ownership, which, again, it just underlines what a different worldview. Yeah. You know, this is all about belonging to country and everything emanates from country, but country and dreaming are these big concepts that include family and spirituality and generosity and purpose and, you know, these really beautiful themes that, uh, you know, can really teach us as a broader society in this day and age. You know, I think in, in a sense this 60,000-year-old 60, culture um, has so much to say right now yeah. in the midst of this pandemic and this, the out of desperate need for connection and, uh, you know, connectivity was just embedded and family is everything you know Yanua have a termly manga which means my family is the song of my life it mm. leads me across the landscape of my destiny and you know in a sense the family as the center of this collective is uh, is just a very powerful thing and if you think about it I guess you know 60,000 years this is a highly highly evolved human system and unfortunately with the um, realities of colonialism we just uh Landed, uh, bungled through the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the history that we all know more of now, but really didn't see. We, we didn't see what we would lose. And I think it's about that acknowledgement that is, uh, you know, it, it, it's good to see, but it, it also must be heartbreaking for people who know that it was there all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Mm. I, I wanted to bring up, you're an inductee of both the Australian Design Institute Hall of Fame and the Australian Businesswomen's Hall of Fame, which is pretty amazing. <laughs> You're very kind, Matt. Um, I feel like I've been really fortunate to, you know, be able to cross a number of areas uh, in my career. I, I really do love writing and the fact it was possible to write the book at the same time, I hope, give voice to the older women from our family's community was, was really great. And, uh, you know, look, to have been able to forge a business in what's been a very tough environment, you know, 
trying to create a market and create um, a design studio back 30 years, 35 years ago was was pretty tough. So I'm really proud of what we've been able to do as a business and, you know, all credit to the teams that we've worked with, a lot of teams over that time, but particularly our current team that's really pivoted us in the last while towards these really large projects and I think ways to really influence the Australian narrative in a, you know, in a new way, in a powerful way. So, you know, all credit to them. So business-wise and design-wise and, you know, the, the fact we've been able to grow a family and a business and a narrative uh, yeah. is pretty special and, you know, I'm, I'm always grateful. That's wonderful. Yeah, you have an amazing story. And talking about stories, it's really, it's phenomenal. How can our audience find out more about you and, and what Balanrinji is doing? So our website is a good place to start. So balanrinji.com.au and uh, we'll, we'll, we're regularly updating our major projects there. We're talking a little bit about our philosophy and uh, why we do what we do. Fantastic. And Prue, where can people find out more about you? Um, mainly these days on Instagram or LinkedIn. Prudence M. Jones on Instagram, Prue Jones on LinkedIn. Just look me up. If you want to find out more about this podcast and other podcasts, you can check out OzDesignRadio.com and find us on the socials at OzDesignRadio. Roz, thank you so much for spending the time. It was a real pleasure um, to have you on. Thanks, Matt. It was really lovely to speak with you and with your crew. Thanks, Roz.